The reading today will be from Matthew 13, and then be 24 to 30, and 36 to 43. I will be reading from the NRSV, and I will start with 13:24. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was asleep, an enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. And the slaves of the householder came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? He answered, The enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he replied, No. For in gathering the weeds, you would uproot the wheat along with them. Let, them, let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Collect the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now 36. Then he left the crowds, and he being Jesus, and went into the house, and his disciples approached him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are collected and burned up with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will collect out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all evildoers, and they will throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Let anyone with ears listen. Good morning. Uh, Jeff uh, already took over and preached about a quarter of my sermon. That's good. <laughs> um, I'm going to start with something other than weeds right now. Have any of you ever seen or held counterfeit bills or coins? Some may have. Yeah, individuals that deal with money. Um, what does one look like? What does it feel like? Um, I, I never have. Um, how do you tell if a bill or a coin is counterfeit? Well, a, a good counterfeit piece of money needs to look and feel credible incredibly close to whatever the real thing might be. If not, nobody is going to be fooled. It'd be obvious. And so there's deception involved. About 600 B.C. is where the first coinage actually began, uh, Kingdom of Lydia, which would be current-day Turkey. And with the hearts of humans, counterfeiting began soon after that, looking for ways to make a quick buck. But we all know that deception started long before 600 B.C. Started back in the garden. Serpent began deception long ago. And so that's what today's parable is about. It's about deception, about lies. It's about distortion of truth. So a, a brief explanation of the parable itself. 
Uh, we'll follow this way. The, the Son of Man, Jesus, has sown good field or good seed in the field, in the world. And then Satan, the deceiver, has planted his own seeds, his weeds, and referred to in the King James Version as tares. So both the good seed and the tares, they grow together within the setting of this world. And in Jesus' teaching in the parable, he does not promote the weeding of the tares. He says, wait, don't do it right yet. And so why would the sower not remove the weeds, the tares, as soon as they appeared? I mean, Jeff was promoting being a good gardener, getting rid of those weeds. Okay, so in this setting, why, why not? A good gardener removes those, providing nutrients for the good seed to grow. So last week, um, I had the opportunity to preach on the parable of the sower and the seed. And in that scenario, the seed was the gospel, the word of God. And that was tossed under the various different types of soil. And then it was rejected or accepted depending on our hearts. But our hearts was the soil. The seed was the gospel. And so there was a different representation. This week, the seed does not refer to the gospel. The seed refers to wheat or weeds, whether it was sown by Jesus Christ or it was sown by the devil. And so the weeds, the wheat, they represent people living in the world today. And so if we consider the possibility of removing those weeds, what we would be proposing is yanking out from this world all of the non-believers and throwing them right into the fiery furnace today. Send them to hell. And I think that runs contrary to Jesus' call for repentance, for reconciliation, and for forgiveness. But again, what does that parable mean for us? So I've got a picture that I want to show you. And, and this is a picture of tares and wheat. <clears throat> Excuse me. On the left is a picture of a weed known as Donald. And that would be a very poisonous weed that does look very similar to wheat. On the right would be a picture of wheat. Now, can you tell the difference between the two? Not completely, right? <laughs> well, and, and that's, a, that's a good, honest answer because, yeah, if you're walking through the field with what you see right here, you may be able to tell the difference. But here's, here's a part of the challenge. Those pictures are taken near the end of the harvest time. Those are not pictures taken early in the process of living in this world. And so... If you were walking through and you were yanking out wheat and tares, Jeff even made reference to currently weeding out weeds sometimes yanks out the wrong thing. Well, that's kind of what this is talking about. Early in the process of growth, it's not always easy to tell the difference. William McClure Thompson, an American Protestant minister, wrote this back in 1859 
about the wheat and the tares. So 1859, the tare abounds all over the East and is a great nuisance to the farmer. It resembles the American wheat, but the head does not droop like wheat, nor does it branch out like oats. The grain is smaller and is arranged along the upper part of the stalk, which stands perfectly erect. The taste is bitter, and when eaten separately, or even when diffused in ordinary bread, it causes dizziness and often acts as a violent emetic, causing vomiting. Barn door fowls also become dizzy from eating it. In short, it is a strong poison and must be carefully winnowed and picked out of the wheat, grain by grain, before grinding, or the flour is not healthy. Even the farmers who in this country generally weed their fields do not attempt to separate one from the other. They would not only mistake good grain for tares, but very commonly the roots of the two are so intertwined that it is impossible to separate them without plucking up both. So both, therefore, must be left to grow together until the time of harvest. So the parable that Jesus gave, I mean, it fits with a general farming scenario. People would understand that. Farmers would understand that back in biblical time. At the time of harvest, as stated in verses 41 through 43, this is what Corey read, the Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So some important observations within this parable. The wheat and the tares are not to be separated early in the growth process. Separation occurs at the time of harvest. Also, we are not the ones doing the weeding. God and his angels are the ones that are doing the weeding of the wheat and the tares of people. Mike Leake, a lead pastor writing for Christianity.com, helps explain this in a spiritual sense with a question and then a couple of observations. First of all, he asks, is it possible for a new disciple or, I'm sorry, is it possible that a new disciple might not look much different than a person of the world at first? Second, keep in mind that somebody like Judas Iscariot would have been present for this parable, and from all appearances within the New Testament, not a single disciple was suspicious of Judas. But there were other disciples, like Peter, who couldn't stop putting his foot in his mouth. And yet, where did they end up? Where was the harvest? Third comment that he made, there might be those who appear to be tares who are actually wheat and vice versa. It is best to leave it up to the master to take care of that harvest. Gotquestions.com is a site that I, I use frequently for different questions. And they refer to three examples in times of history where humans took truth into their own hands and were incredibly destructive. Spanish Inquisition from 1478 to 1834, attempting to identify heretics who converted from Judaism and Islam to Catholicism. Damage. Variety of crusades that occurred in history, all seeking to 
uh, convert believers from one religion belief system to another. Mary Tudor, Queen of Elizabeth, or Queen of England from 1553 to 1558, also known as Bloody Mary, burned dissenters of the Church of England at the stake. So if, if we take things into our own hands, with our own energy, our wisdom, to spread truth, is it possible, maybe likely, that we can do harm? Got questions continued with this statement. One has only to look at the latest televangelist scandals to know the world is filled with professing Christians whose ungodly actions bring reproach on the name of Christ. There are, there are false teachings that occur, but we are not to pursue such people in an effort to destroy them. So let me, let me restate that last part. We are not to pursue such people, those doing the ungodly things in an effort to destroy them. So are we called to stand by and do nothing and let untruth be taught and lived out? Are we not called to address lies and false teachings? And here's, here's my answer to both of those. No, we are not called to stand by and do nothing. And yes, we are called to speak truth and expose untruth and lies. Ephesians 5.11 says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. So expose them. Well, who, who is them? In vacation Bible school this summer, we learned about the armor of God. But before listing all of the individual pieces of the armor in Ephesians 6, 14 through 18, in verses 11 and 12, here's what Paul writes. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We're not fighting people. We're fighting the devil. We're in a battle with a power that is not of this world. We are not in conflict with the terrors of this world. These two are not supposed to be fighting each other. But we're aware of what we are needing to fight. We are to be in conflict with the one who planted the untrue ideas the false teachings and the lies. That's who our enemy is, Satan. We do not embrace sin. We do not condone sin. But who are we fighting with? Know who we are in a battle with. And so, so here's a couple of questions I have though. What are some of the lies in the world? And, and I've got a partial list because this list could go on and you could get more detailed if you would want. What about the prosperity, uh, prosperity gospel? There, there's many churches that are promoting that in many different ways. That'd be the promise that God will bless us with worldly things as we serve him faithfully. Well, again, no. 
In Matthew 6.19, Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. It's not about treasures here. John 16.33, and this is where Jesus did, he wasn't just talking about prosperity in monetary means. He said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. You will have trouble. Things will not go our way. Making money or attaining any other kind of worldly success. And I put that word in, in my notes, success. Because we define our success too many times as far as what I experience here. If we're looking for our success on earth, we're following a lie. Because God has a higher success, a higher aim, a higher reward for those who follow him. What about sexuality? Our confession of faith begins Article 6 with this statement based on Genesis 1.26. We believe that God has created human beings in the divine image. So our identity, our image, starts with an image of being in the image of God. There was a divine purpose in how God designed relationships and designed humans. He did not create garbage. He did not make mistakes. From Genesis 2, the story of the creation of Adam and Eve, the confession of faith states, because both Adam and Eve were equally and wonderfully made in the divine image, God's will from the beginning has been for women and men to live in loving and mutually helpful relationships with one another. So I believe that all the way throughout scripture, God reveals his creation of man and woman for relationship with one another and with him in a blessed way. A creation that was male and female. A creation that was blessed as male and female with differences that exist. But a creation and a blessing of the unity between male and female with the command in Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and increase in number. Satan is the one who's created the confusion in this area. He's the one we need to keep fighting against. Third one especially uh, referred to is idolatry. And, and idolatry, I, I would say, is the primary problem with the prosperity gospel. Money and success. Anything taking the place of God as more important than God is an idol. That's idolatry. Jeffrey Curtis Poor, a pastor at Storyline Christian Church in Johnstown, Colorado, listed some current day idols that he sees rising. Material possessions, that's kind of obvious. We see that all the time. But what about job status, physical appearance, entertainment, and our love of being entertained? Comfort, influence, or fame. And, and when, when I saw this list, I saw influence. And I still do not understand how somebody can claim that their job is social influencer. We've given power to that job as a society. I, I, I still don't understand that. 
those are not individuals that I am wanting and desiring to be influenced by. And yet that's here in our world. So these three things that I listed, the, the prosperity, sexuality, idolatry, and many others, are lies about what God has created. Lies about what God is calling us to do in relationship with him, relationship with one another. And we are in a battle to stand firm, fitted with the full armor of God, to withstand the devil's schemes. We are in a battle to expose those lies. But we're also not immune to falling for lies ourselves, getting caught up, tripped up. And, and, and too many times, we, that's what the words we use. Well, we got, we got tripped up. We don't want to say we fell flat on our face and sinned. We got tripped up. Well, sneaky thoughts find their way in. And it's small little ways that we can get nicked and cut and weakened by untruths. So here's a few questions that I have for myself and for us. Have I ever considered myself to be more holy, more righteous, better than somebody else? Whether that's in my faith walk or the way I go about life in general, it doesn't matter. Have I ever wished that I had something that somebody else had, a possession or a talent? Oh, God, if I, if I could just do this, then, then I'd be happy. Have I entered into a life decision, a business deal, whatever it might be, and I have not given God time in prayer to help me make that decision, discern properly what, what God's calling me to do in those scenarios? Have I ever thought, and I'll let you fill in the blank at the end of this, I've earned the right and the freedom to, I'll let you fill in the blank. I've earned the freedom and the right. Dangerous questions. Have I ever excluded someone because to include them would have been uncomfortable or inconvenient? We can be prideful. We can be envious. We can be selfish with our possessions and time. We can be self-reliant, not needing God. We can be self-righteous. We can portray a sense of superiority based on our wealth, our knowledge, our prestige, respect that we are given in our culture, our skills, our abilities, our status. And I would say all of these are lies, right along with prosperity, the sexuality, and the idolatry. Ephesians 6 lists the six pieces of the armor of God. The belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, shoes of peace, the shield of faith, helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. But there's one last thing that is identified in that scripture that goes right along with and completes that set of six. Ephesians 6.18 says this at the end of that list. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind. And, and so that, say, that would say with prayer in mind. 
Be alert and always keep on praying for all of God's people. So if we view ourselves as the wheat in this world and in this parable, and I pray that we do, and that's what we're challenging ourselves and encouraging each other to be, is the wheat in this world. What are we called to do? Well, I said we don't fight people. We don't yank out individuals who we say, oh, there's a tear. They need to be removed from this world. We arm ourselves and we fight the devil and all of his lies with the armor that God has given us. Surrounded and supported by prayers. Daily prayers, continuous prayers. Prayers of his people. Fighting the devil will involve speaking truth to combat his lies. It will be conversations with those in our society that don't agree with us. Fighting the devil will involve loving those who are under his, the devil's, influence. And the wheat will need to stand firm. We'll need to stay focused on truth, not being swayed by what we may feel, what we may hear, our own temptations, our own challenges. And we need to influence the region where we're at. Whether it's your home, your workplace, your community, your neighborhood, wherever that may be. And so here's, here's a question though. Can you change a tear to being wheat? No, you can't. But God can. God can. So truth with love is the title of my sermon today. And, and that, that's a phrase that's, that's used commonly. And, and so part of what I want to refer to is, okay, so what, kind of what does that mean, breaking out just a little bit more? Well, truth will involve speaking and using Scripture. And maybe using confession of faith for additional help to describe some things. And our confession of faith is based on Scripture. It doesn't stand alone. Scripture is where our basis is. And truth will not be a matter of us worrying about convicting anybody of anything. The Spirit will be doing that as we have those conversations but we need to have those conversations. Truth will involve submitting ourselves to God's wisdom as we discern scripture wisely together and staying aware as God continues to convict us and work within our own hearts and our own lives. And love will be a matter of committing to the welfare of another. Love will seek for a relationship that will begin, maybe, be introduced, but then it's going to grow. And it grows in time. Time spent together. In discussion. And love will be willing to venture into some challenging conversations. With God's wisdom. Surrounding those conversations. Leading and guiding. Frequently we, you know, 1 Corinthians 13. The love chapter. You use that for weddings all the time, but it fits here. And I want to read verses 4 through 7 of 1 Corinthians 13. It says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. 
It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. The tears, the lies of this world must be fought off with truth, with the sword of the Spirit, God's Word, the Bible. But let us keep in mind that it's God's truth that we are using, not our own. And also keep in mind that it is God's love that we are sharing through us, through our actions, through our words, through our deeds. Darius McNeely uh, is an associate pastor at United Church of God in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I want to finish my sermon here with four paragraphs from an article that he wrote called Lessons from the Parables. And, and he was speaking about this parable in particular. He said this, the modern world doesn't like to hear a word like judgment. Judgment implies that there are standards, laws, and absolutes, both morally and ethically. But God says there is a coming time of judgment that will deal with lawlessness and unrighteousness. The key is that it is God's judgment, not man's. That is a wonderful and a comforting truth because God judges in perfect righteousness and in his time. We need to take God and his working very seriously. I don't want to be a tear, someone who impersonates the real thing. How about you? The world is full of good intentions, but short of those who carry through to show themselves the real thing. In this case, the real thing is a genuine Christian planted by God in his field. It is not my role, nor it is yours, to figure out who are the tares and who are the wheat. Let God do that. Perhaps the main reason this parable is here is to sound a warning to all of us who profess Christianity to examine ourselves to make sure we are in the true faith. And I would add day by day, hour by hour, following the teaching of Christ and building on a right foundation of truth and love. Jesus likened those who heard his teachings and actually did them to one who built his house on a rock to thereby withstand the winds and gales of life that seek to destroy and shipwreck faith. In this parable, Christ concludes by saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's wise to hear the teaching and let it move us in godly fear to habits and the life that are sound and faithful. So he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Know what the truth is. Read the truth. Share the truth. But as we speak that truth and we live out that truth, do it with love and care. And that last part that I just referred to, it's not just a matter of knowing the truth. We're called to live truth with love.